Our great God and Father in heaven, this is indeed our prayer as we come before you this evening, that in meditating upon the glory and greatness that you have revealed concerning yourself in both the book of nature and in the book of Scripture, that we might be moved, O Lord, to humble prayer, that we would confess our faults, even those faults that we know are there, but we have not yet identified within ourselves that we would look to you as our rock and our redeemer, and that we would pray, O God, that you would sanctify us within and without, that every thought of our hearts, every word of our mouths, every deed of our lives would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, that you would accept us, O Lord, not because we are good, but because your righteous Son, who is good, has become our Lord and Savior, and his righteousness you have accounted as our own. We thank you, O God, for the blessings of this week. We are thankful that we can be together tonight to open your word and to study and reflect upon its truth. We are thankful, O God, for prayers you have answered and for brothers and sisters who you continue to sustain, some in illness, some in sorrow, some in daily trials and uh, of various kinds. We pray, God, that you would continue to bless your people, to strengthen, heal, and help all of those who are in need. We ask your blessing upon our nation, O God, that you would give our rulers and leaders wisdom to govern in the fear of you, that you would restrain and defeat their folly, and that you would overthrow the wicked, O God, and raise the God-fearing to power. We ask your blessing upon your church, O God, that you would continue to strengthen and edify her, cause her to grow in grace, in number, and in good works. We pray that more congregations would be established that would faithfully proclaim your word and that existing congregations of your people throughout all the world would be reformed and revived according to the working of your spirit within us all. Bless us tonight as we open the scriptures together. Please open our eyes and our hearts, our minds, stretch us and help us to know that true goodness and justice and righteousness can only be known insofar as we know you. We thank you that you have known us and that you have loved us and that you have made your grace and goodness known to us in Christ by your Spirit. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So tonight we are starting a new series of studies, and these are going to go uh, over the next uh, five Wednesdays, I think, uh, as we were talking about the schedule this morning. It'll go through the end of May, and so we'll have about five weeks to cover uh, our topic, and this is a topic that we will probably then come back to later in this year or next. Uh, In June and July, just to give you a little bit of a preview, uh, we are going to be focusing on some highlights from church history, focusing primarily on the ancient church and the medieval church, and that is going to be a series in June and July on Wednesday nights that myself and Dane and Caleb Harriman are all going to kind of tag team in, and so each week you'll have a different one of us up here, but we will be working on kind of those same basic themes. But for this month, I want us to reflect a little bit on Christian ethics. And I want us to talk about what it is and the ways in which we ought to think Christianly about the discipline of ethics. And that is simply the question of morality. What is it that man ought to do? What ought he not to do? What is good? What is evil? What is justice? What is injustice? And these series of studies are not necessarily going to appear in sequential order. There will be a development of thought, obviously, hopefully there will be kind of a method to the madness, but any one of these lessons 
could at least theoretically be studied on its own, and that's certainly true of the study that we're going to engage in tonight. But hopefully you'll see uh, more uh, through uh, studying all of these lessons together. The handout that you have tonight is one page, but the PDF that is in your online resource folder, which includes this first page, is actually 15 pages long. So if you want a little more in-depth, you can go there and you can look at that material and study it. It will be kind of an expansion of uh, the ideas that we cover tonight, Lord willing. Uh, Before we begin with the material on your study guide, I want to read a portion of three verses. So don't even even try to turn because this is going to be very quick, but you can jot these down. I'm going to read a portion of Psalm 100, verse 5, Psalm 145, verse 17, and Psalm 36, and verse 9. So listen carefully as I read. Psalm 100 and verse 5, Yahweh is good. His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endures to all generations. Psalm 145, verse 17, Yahweh is righteous in all His ways, gracious in all His works. And Psalm 36 and verse 9, For with you is the fountain of life, in your light we see light. Those are three verses out of many that we could read tonight that would well introduce and summarize our theme. We're going to be talking tonight about what is typically known as the Euthyphro Dilemma. This is from one of Plato's dialogues. If you've ever read any Plato, maybe you read this in high school, you might have read it in college, you might never have read it before. Uh, Euthyphro in Greek, but we typically call him Euthyphro. Euthyphro is one of Plato's dialogues. It's one of his Socratic dialogues where Plato is relating and experience a series of events in the life of his teacher, Socrates. Euthyphro is one part of four dialogues that go together that are leading up to Socrates' execution. And in Euthyphro, Socrates is coming to the court where he will be arraigned on the charges that ultimately lead to his execution later on in the Apology. Euthyphro, which is one of his best-known dialogues, uh, Euthyphro is Plato's presentation of certain ethical questions and the way in which Socrates deals with this. Now, Socrates does not deal uh, definitively with these issues in this dialogue. One of the things, if you've read any of the Socratic dialogues that you might find frustrating, is that Socrates is constantly raising questions. He's never really answering questions, and you might say that might be one of the reasons that they eventually decided to kill him. But Euthyphro, which is a very short dialogue, by the way, when we think about this as, you know, as a book, this is really just a little pamphlet. Uh, Euthyphro, which is not lengthy, it's in the public domain, you can easily find it. Euthyphro is a classic text for the study of ethics. If you ever take a philosophy class, if you ever take a class on ethics in particular, you're almost certainly going to read Euthyphro. And it is the source of what has come to be known as the Euthyphro Dilemma, which really questions what is the source and how do we define the concept of what is holy. What is holiness? What is piety? Or by extension, what is goodness? And how do we know? Where does it come from? Is goodness good because it exists in an objective way? Or is goodness only 
good by the assignment of its name. In other words, we have said this is good, and because we have said it is good, therefore it's good. But it could have been bad if we had said something different. The gods have said certain things are right, certain things are wrong, but we could have reversed that. The gods could have said this other thing is wrong and this is right, and it would have been just just as true because the concept of goodness in that case would only be nominal and not actual. And again, we're not going to get into kind of the philosophical weeds here, but if you are familiar with questions of philosophy and later debates about realism and nominalism, the Euthyphro Dialogue does kind of anticipate those sorts of questions. But the reason that the Euthyphro Dilemma is thorny is because either of the two options that Socrates proposes present significant problems. In other words, you find yourself caught on the horns of a dilemma when you don't know how to choose between these two and neither one of the choices is really a good option. Now what I want to do tonight is to offer a basic but but comprehensive Christian response to the Euthyphro dilemma. And I want to suggest to you that, that really Christianity is the only worldview that can answer the Euthyphro dilemma in an effective way. And it does so by appealing to the necessity of divine revelation by a triune God in order for goodness not only to exist, but to be known as goodness and to ultimately be pursued by men. So the Euthyphro dilemma. At the beginning of Euthyphro, Socrates arrives at the court of the chief magistrate in Athens in order to answer charges of impiety unholiness, right? He's he's being accused of not being properly religious and of corrupting the youth in the city of Athens. These are the charges that do lead to his conviction and ultimately to his death. And as he approaches the court, he is greeted by a younger man named Euthyphro, a young man whose self-confidence in his zealous pursuit of justice and whose confidence in his own self-righteousness very quickly becomes evident in the dialogue and really in quite hilarious ways. Euthyphro, as it turns out, is not there because he is being indicted, but he has come to court in order to indict someone else. In this case, his own father. And when Socrates is a little surprised that Euthyphro has come to bring a charge against his father, he says, what in the world are you charging him with? He says, well, I'm charging him with murder. Murder, really? How did we get here? And and Euthyphro explains the circumstances in a way that seems to shock Socrates and certainly had already shocked Euthyphro's family. Let me read you just one part of the dialogue here. Euthyphro is explaining what led to his presence in the court that day. He says, Now the man who is dead was a poor dependent of mine who worked for us as a field laborer on our farm in Noxos, And one day, in a fit of drunken passion, he, the dead man, got into a quarrel with one of our domestic servants and slew him. My father bound him hand and foot and threw him into a ditch and then sent to Athens to ask of a diviner what he should do with him. Meanwhile, he never attended to him and took no care for him, for he regarded him as a murderer and thought that no great harm would be done even if he did die. Now this was just what happened For such was the effect of cold and hunger and chains upon him that before the messenger returned from the diviner, he was dead. And my father and family are angry with me for taking the part of the murderer and prosecuting my father. They say that he did not kill him and that if he did, the dead man was but a murderer and I ought not to take any notice for that a son is impious who prosecutes a father. 
which shows, Socrates, how little they know what the gods think about piety and impiety. Now, it's kind of an absurd situation, right? So there are two servants on the family farm, and one of them gets angry and kills the other one. And the father, the head of the the estate, the head of the household, he arrests the servant who's committed the murder, and he puts him in the ditch in chains, and then sends word to Athens and says, what are we supposed to do with this guy? And in the meantime, while the messenger's gone, the servant dies, and Euthyphro says, well, my father is a murderer. And so I'm going to come and denounce him. And the family's saying, wait a second, he, he, didn't, he didn't actually kill him. And even if he had, he was guilty of murder. Like, you seem to have a, a twisted sense of what is just in this situation. And Euthyphro turns that right back around on his family and says, you obviously don't know what the gods think about piety and impiety, about what is holy and what is unholy, what is just and what is unjust. He is very brash in the dialogue, and he's very confident that his understanding of justice is superior to theirs. And that provides the context for Socrates' follow-up questions and the rest of the dialogue. So Socrates replies by saying, Good heavens, Euthyphro, and is your knowledge of religion and of things pious and impious so very exact that supposing the circumstances to be as you state them, you are not afraid lest you too may be doing an impious thing and bringing an action against your father? Like, Socrates is saying, does it not give you a moment's pause, right? Like, it sounds like what your dad did like, might not have been good, right? But, but are you so confident that you know justice and religion so well that you, you haven't even wrestled with this situation? And Euthyphro insists that he has, quote, exact knowledge of all such matters. Socrates then draws the young zealot into philosophical discourse by saying, I adjure you then to tell me the nature of piety and impiety, which you said you know so well. And so that's kind of where the dialogue comes from, right? That's kind of the original situation. Now, again, if you've read any of the Socratic dialogues by Plato, then you're familiar with the way that it unfolds. Socrates asks leading questions to expose the unrealized ignorance in Euthyphro's argument and the inconsistencies in his position. But Socrates doesn't ever teach him directly. He doesn't give any definitive answer to the questions that are at issue. In fact, when Socrates asks Euthyphro what piety is, Euthyphro rather hilariously and without any self-awareness affirms, quote, piety is doing as I am doing. And that's interesting because I think that's the way a lot of people think about ethics today. What is right? What is wrong? Well, what I'm doing is right. And what anybody else might be doing, to the contrary, is wrong. That's Euthyphro's self-understanding or lack of understanding in this case. He justifies the decision to prosecute his father on the basis of Zeus's own example of acting against Kronos for the Titans' crime. So if you're familiar with Greek mythology, uh, the Titans give birth to what we think of as the Greek gods and on Mount Olympus, and Zeus takes action against his father Kronos for what he considers to be injustice and violence and, and just generally bad deeds. And so Euthyphro looks at that and says, well, if it, was, if it was appropriate for Zeus to act against his father, then it was appropriate as well for me to act against my father. In other words, Euthyphro's basic ethical outlook is that the example of the gods is ethically normative. Whatever the gods do, that's what ought to be done. Whatever they do, that's what is right. 
Whatever they do, that's how we understand piety. And impiety, unholiness, injustice, is anything else. Now Socrates presses him and asks him, don't don't the gods act in inconsistent ways? Doesn't the same God behave different ways in different circumstances? Don't different gods have different values? And don't the gods even act against one another in some of their conflicts regarding uh, the humans uh, uh, among whom they work? And, And Euthyphro admits, yes, they have differences of opinion about what kinds of things, about good and evil, about just and unjust, about honorable and dishonorable. And Socrates is asking Euthyphro, he says, well, if that's the case, if you say whatever the gods do, that is what is right, that is what's ethically normative, that's what establishes the standard of right and wrong, but then you're also admitting that the gods don't agree on that. They view it in different ways. They act in inconsistent ways. Do you you see the problem? How do you have an ethical standard that doesn't have consistency? that doesn't have internal coherence. But Euthyphro doesn't appear to see the problem. And so as Socrates continues to press Euthyphro for an actual definition, don't just give me examples from the gods. Give me a definition of what is piety, what is holiness, what is righteousness. And finally, Euthyphro responds, quote, Piety is that which is dear to the gods, and impiety is that which is not dear to them. Whatever the gods love, that's piety. Whatever the gods don't love, that's impiety. Well, at least we're we're moving toward a definition, but Socrates says this is still completely inadequate. And this is where we finally get to what we call the Euthyphro dilemma. Socrates clarifies his problem with this definition by pointing this out. He says, quote, The point which I should first wish to understand is whether the pious or holy is beloved by the gods because it is holy or holy because it is beloved by the gods. Which is it? And in Socrates' presentation, it has to be one or the other. These are the only two possibilities, which is why we call it a dilemma. Now, eventually, Socrates is going to say the gods love what is holy because it is holy. It is not holy because they love it. The God's love is a recognition of its universal, external, objective, prior holiness. But do you understand the dilemma? Let's think about it in Christian terms for a second. Is goodness good because God said it is? Or does God say it's good because it was previously already externally, independently good? That's the question. Where do moral values come from? Do they come from God simply identifying them as moral values? Or does He identify them as moral values because that's what they already are? Now, Euthyphro was very self-confident, and yet he did not have any objective basis for knowing what is good at all. His his idea about justice is as unstable as a house of cards. And we don't really know by the end of the dialogue if he ever even questions his own system. You know, he, he finally tells Socrates, I'm very busy, I've got to leave now, and he just kind of abandons the conversation. But we, we don't know where he's going. I mean, is he, is he having some self-doubt? Is he coming under conviction? Or is he going off to denounce his mother? I mean, we don't really know. 
But the question for us that comes out of this dialogue is how do we define goodness? What is right? What is holy? What is just? Is that which is holy beloved by the gods because it is holy? Or is it holy because it is loved by the gods? The first possibility entails a moral difficulty. The latter possibility involves a significant theological problem. If the gods decide what is right and wrong, then right and wrong are not actually moral categories. They are only nominal ones. What that means is that loving one's neighbor is good and murdering him is bad only because the gods decided it would be that way. And they might have decided otherwise. Perhaps in some possible world they did choose otherwise. Maybe in another possible world, loving one's family and friends and nation would be considered immoral. And having skill and experience in murder might be considered highly virtuous. Now you know immediately there's no such possible world. That that never could be. But how do you know that? How do you know if the gods simply decide what is right and wrong arbitrarily? Now, some atheistic philosophers and ethicists have affirmed that all moral norms are arbitrary. Does everybody understand what what I mean when I say norm? Norm, I'm not referring to a man's name. I'm referring to a standard, that which is normative, the rule, the law, right? And some, some unbelieving ethicists, some unbelieving scholars and philosophers have said all moral rules are only arbitrary. And I've got a number of books written by those men in my library. And what's interesting is that they say that very confidently, kind of like Euthyphro had his own confidence about his worldview, but no one really seems to believe it, including the ethicists who say it. Uh, What I've observed in these conversations is that it is very easy to claim moral relativism from the safety and security of an ivory tower that is located in the Western world, where you have the benefits by heritage and history of a Judeo-Christian ethic, and your neighbors are not murdering you in the streets and eating you, right? So it's very easy in our prosperous and largely safe society to pontificate about all moral values are only relative They're entirely arbitrary. They could be otherwise because there are no universal values. Now, there are many cultural and societal norms that are only relative in their propriety. That is true. I think all of us would admit that. But I want to point out that the quest for what is right and wrong, the quest for moral norms has always been a search for objective, universal, and transcendent values including by unbelievers. If right and wrong are relative, then who can condemn racism or rape or serial murder? And yet abolitionists argued that slavery was immoral, including the atheistic abolitionists and Unitarian abolitionists and highly progressive abolitionists that were agitating in the middle of the 19th century leading up to our war between the states. They were arguing that slavery was wrong. But what is wrong if there are no objective and universal values? Think about the debate around abortion in our own generation. 
The, the debate around abortion is a debate about the priority, the relative priority of competing values. What are the values that you're debating? The life of the unborn child and the freedom of the mother. And one side prioritizes the life of the child and the other side prioritizes the freedom of the mother. But do you recognize that that is a debate about which value has higher priority? Which value has transcendence? Which value has supremacy? The debate is not about are there ethical standards? Even though some philosophers want to pretend like that's the conversation we're having. Are there really objectively things that are right and wrong? They want to say that that's what the conversation is about, but it's not. So don't get drawn into that. The question is not do ethical standards exist? The question is which ethical standards are we going to embrace? Now, what about the other side of the dilemma? If the gods merely approve of the good, that we've been talking about the, the problem of saying what is good is good because the gods decided it is. And they, they, just, they just said, and it could have been another way, but this is what they said. That's it, all kinds of moral problems. Basically, you don't have morality if that's the case. Morality is a myth. But what about the flip side? What if goodness is only recognized as good by the gods because it was independently good, independent of the gods and their recognition? In that case, the gods may concur with moral standards, but they do not determine them. And thus, even the gods are subject to a higher authority, one that is outside of their own being and nature. And that is not only unobjectionable in the context of Greek uh, polytheism, it's actually necessary in that system. <laughs> like you, you have to believe that there is a universal, objective, external standard because otherwise, no one in the Greco-Roman world would know which gods were behaving justly and which were behaving unjustly. Because if you've read any Greek mythology, oh my, <laughs> the gods are a mess. The gods are behaving in all kinds of grotesque ways, unjust ways. But you wouldn't be able to tell it if they determine what is right and wrong. And so that independence, that independence of moral standards apart from the gods is absolutely a necessary feature of Greek polytheism. But if moral norms do exist outside of and apart from the gods, where did they come from? Who established those rules? Are they necessary and inescapable? Are they eternal like the laws of logic? And if they are, why is there so much disagreement about them? Like you generally, up until recently, didn't have to argue with a person that 2 plus 2 equals 4, not 5. Or about the law of non-contradiction. I mean, it just it's axiomatic. You don't need an argument for it. It's self-evidently true. And everybody knows that. But if the moral law exists universally, objectively, eternally, outside of God, outside of any other gods then where did it come from and why don't we all recognize it as axiomatic? Clearly we don't. After the decline of Greek paganism and the ascendance of Christianity, this dilemma was restated in Christian terms and it continues to be a part of the Christian tradition. Many theologians have talked about it throughout the years and they continue to do so to this very day. But the basic problem is that Neither of Socrates' possibilities 
provides an adequate answer to the source and definition of justice and virtue. Either option that you choose has a host of problems, but fortunately, they are not the only options. Now, for the sake of time tonight, I want to skip over some of the problematic presuppositions. You can look at the fuller notes, or you can look at um, the handout that you've got for a little bit about that. One of the things that I would suggest just in passing is that if you assume that Plato and Socrates are simply accepting uncritically the polytheism of their day, I would suggest that you might be misreading Plato. That Plato actually seems to be using the dialogue in Euthyphro as a critique of the polytheism in his day. And he is suggesting that another theological system, another theological view is necessary for answering the question. Um, Just briefly, in, in Plato's larger works, you have his view that the gods, plural, are daimons, right? What, what we would think of as spirits. But there is a god who stands above all of them and who is the maker of the forms. And so I, I would suggest that Euthyphro is actually a critique of Greek polytheism, but that takes us a little outside of our, our topic tonight, so we won't spend time on that. Let me get to a Christian response to the Euthyphro dilemma And I want to develop this under three points that we'll just kind of uh, briefly go through. Christianity made explicit what was imperfectly understood by Plato and was outright denied by ancient polytheism. That being that there is one God who made the universe and all things, one God who established, to whatever degree we agree with this and I would critique it, but who established the forms as Plato thought of them to which all other things correspond and in relation to whom all other spiritual beings are only creatures, not gods. In other words, there is one supreme god and and he's not Zeus and he's not Kronos, he's not Poseidon, he's not Hades, he's not any of those demons. He is the maker of all. The unity of the true God is a necessary precondition for any consistent relationship between the character and conduct of the divine being and the moral duties of mankind. One of the reasons that you can't look to the gods in Greek polytheism for guidance in ethics is that there are so many different gods who have so many different values and who behave in so many different contradictory ways. Whereas Christianity comes along and says, no, 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 there's one God, and he is always consistent with himself. There is one God who is united in his being. He is who he is. He is what he is all the time. All the time and in every way. For example, in Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Most of these passages I'm going to just refer to, uh, but I've given you the references so that you can look them up later on your own. In Exodus 3, at the burning bush, Yahweh says to Moses, I am that I am. So what does that mean? It means that Yahweh is who He is and is always who He is. He is not only eternal, He is consistent. He doesn't change. He was not one kind of God in the past and a different kind of God in the future. 
He does not have one value system at one point in history and another value system at another. He is who he is and he is unchanging. There is a coherent, consistent view of God that gives rise then to a coherent, consistent view of ethics because we look to God ultimately to establish what is right and wrong. God's unity in this way is associated with His immutability, which is the fancy theological word for the fact that God is unchanging. He's unchanging and He's unchangeable. God cannot learn. God cannot grow. God cannot love you more. He cannot hate sin any more than He already does because He already expresses those attributes to a maximal degree. And so any change in his being could only be for the worse. In other words, if he were to change in any way, even if you posited the idea that he's changing in a good way, it would diminish his greatness right now. He can't be all-powerful right now if it's possible for him to gain more power later. He can't be all-knowing now if it's possible for him to learn more later. God's unchangeable nature is derived from His unity and simplicity. Because unlike the gods of Greek polytheism, God is one. He is one. And that doesn't just mean He's one being, although that's also true. It means that one being is not composed of any parts. This is important. I am one person. I am one being. I have one human nature. But I am a being that is composite in his nature. I have brown hair right now. I had blonde hair when I was a little boy. I might have no hair when I'm an old man. I have two arms and two legs, but you could cut off any or all of those and you wouldn't change me. You wouldn't change who I am. But you could change all kinds of things about me. God does not have parts in that way. When we think about God's attributes, we're not supposed to think about separate properties. We're we're supposed to think about separate aspects of the one being of God. The analogy we've used a bunch of times here is looking at a gemstone. You take a gemstone, you hold it up to the light, and you turn it. And what do you see? Different angles, different colors, all kinds of different facets of the gem, but what are you looking at? You're looking at one thing. You're not looking at different parts. You're looking at one thing, the gem. And in the same way, when we look at God's attributes, we're not looking at different parts of God. We are looking at God. His attributes are one because He is one. Now, Christianity does admit that the world and its inhabitants do change, and that God's responses to them appear to change in relation to faith and disobedience and things of that nature. So you see God repenting or relenting at different times. He'll threaten judgment, and then He will change His mind. Or He will determine to bless, and then He will change His mind and instead curse. And you say, well, God is changing there. No, what's happening is the world is changing in relation to God. God is like the sun. He is unmoving. But we move in relation to the sun and consequently we have periods of light and periods of darkness. 
And so as man moves in relation to God, he experiences God's love, God's favor, God's hate, God's judgment. But it's not God changing, but rather man changing in relation to Him. Socrates does not argue that it is inappropriate to associate what the gods love with what is holy and right and good. We would admit God loves what is holy and right and good. But Socrates simply points out that there is no rational basis for that kind of connection given Euthyphro's theology and worldview. In a world where multiple gods exist, who do not agree in their character, who do not agree in their conduct, there's no way to know what is holy simply by studying what the gods love. You would have to ask which gods or on what day because what virtue they prefer might change. But if you look to the one God who is one and who is unchanging, who is eternal, who is consistent, then you can see in His love, in His good pleasure, that which is holy and right and good because His attitude towards those virtues is as eternal and unchanging as He Himself is. Secondly, the righteousness of God. Christianity recognizes that God is the eternal source and definition of truth, goodness, and beauty. Think about a few passages that you know. 1 John 1 and verse 5, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. 1 John 1, 7, we are to walk in the light. How? 1 John 2, verses 3 to 6, by keeping His commandments. What does that mean? If God is light and we walk in the light by doing His will, it means His commands are an expression of His own character and nature. It's not as if God is over here and then He has commanded something separate from Himself, unrelated to His being, and those are the rules we are to follow. God's moral commandments are an expression of Himself. And that is why throughout the Bible, most memorably in Leviticus 19 and verse 2, the Lord says, Be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. That means that the standard of righteousness is neither nominal nor external to God. Do you understand? So we've just ruled out both of the options that Socrates proposes in his conversation with Euthyphro. He said, well, you know, is, is what is holy loved by the gods because it's holy, or is it, is it holy because it's loved by the gods? Which is it? And the answer is neither. Neither. And in another way, both. Because yes, God loves that which is holy, obviously. And, and, and yes, there's a sense in which God defines that which is holy by His Word. And yet it's neither nominal and arbitrary, nor is it external to God and independent of His being. Because that which is holy is loved by God because it is an expression and revelation and application of God's own nature. Righteousness cannot be other than what it is because God cannot be other than who He is. Being omnipotent doesn't mean that God is capable of doing anything. He cannot make a square circle. He cannot make a married bachelor. 
His actions are constrained by His character. The Bible says He is holy, righteous, and good, and He cannot be otherwise. God does not have the ability to be unholy. Do you understand that? So when you say God's all-powerful, God can do anything. Yes, within the constraints of His character and His nature, that's true. But he, He can't lie. He can't fail. He cannot be tempted by moral evil. He cannot tempt anyone to do wickedness. He cannot change. Standards of right and wrong are not arbitrary. They are determined by God's own character revealed in the moral law. And that means there is no possible world where we have kind of the uh, uh, photo negative of the Ten Commandments. And this is now the moral law in that possible world. (laughs) Thou shalt murder. Thou shalt commit adultery. Thou shalt steal. Thou shalt bear false witness. There's no possible world where that is because the moral law is simply one part of the revelation of God. The heavens above declare the glory of our God and so too does the law of God. It declares His glory, His righteousness. And those are the commands that we are to walk in. The moral law is not outside of God. It's not prior to God. It's not superior to God in any way. It is simply a manifestation of His holiness and justice. And so while, yes, it is true, the Lord approves of His law, it is not in the sense of acknowledging something apart from Himself or outside of His control. To make this point, let me use this illustration. God does not approve of His law in the way that a visitor to a museum sees a piece of art and admires it. God doesn't come to the museum and look at the moral law and say, wow, it's really beautiful. It's really great. Very holy. Very righteous. I like that. That's not what God's doing. Instead, the moral law is what God sees when He looks in a mirror. And He approves of what He sees. Because the moral law is a mirror. That's what James says. Showing us ourselves and showing us the holiness of God. See, this is the fascinating thing. This is true of the law, and it's true of the Logos, Jesus, the Christ. Because what do you see when you look at Jesus and when you look at the law? Well, you see your unholiness in comparison to the law and the Lord, and you also see the Lord's righteousness. Isn't that interesting? The law is a mirror. And so when God looks in the mirror, He approves of what He sees because He sees His own righteousness. How can God's personal righteousness be an eternal standard of holiness, goodness, and truth when much of the moral law is social in its context and application? Now, this this is a question that may or may not have occurred to you, but it's one I want to deal with very quickly. So much of God's moral law is social in its context, social in its outworking. And you say, how then can that be eternal if the one God in eternity prior to creation, already has this righteous character. And you're saying that's just applied in the moral law, but but God's all alone in eternity past, right? Well, the doctrine of the Trinity is what answers this. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist in eternal love and perfect fellowship. Remember, creation is not a necessary act. It's gratuitous. God didn't have to make anyone or anything. He didn't make us because He needed someone to love. He already existed in perfect love, perfect fellowship within the triune relationship. And so creation manifests God's power, wisdom, glory, goodness, but it's sheer grace, not necessity. 
and the moral law manifests God's love and justice and goodness within the triune relationship to which we are now invited in union with the Son. That's why Jesus in the high priestly prayer prays about, I pray that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Or in John 14, when Jesus says, if anyone loves me, my Father will also love him and come and we will make our abode with him. Christians are being drawn into the triune love of of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that love pre-exists creation. Goodness is originally and most basically personal. Goodness is originally and most basically personal. It's not a thing. It's a person. The triune God whom we love. It is God's character. It's his consistency that ultimately defines what is right what is holy, what is good. Moral values are as stable and eternal as the Lord, who in revealing them has revealed himself. That's not necessarily true of every part of uh, what God has commanded of men. There are all kinds of ceremonial laws. There are all kinds of particular to one individual at a particular time and place commands that God gives. We're not talking about that. We're talking about God's moral law. The eternal, unchanging law is eternal and unchanging because God is eternal and unchanging and the law is a manifestation of Him. And then third, the revelation of God and this question. The Euthyphro dilemma is not only a question about ethics, it is a matter of epistemology, which is a fancy philosophical word for talking about how do we know what we know. What is holy? What is good? What is just? What should a person do? And more fundamentally, how can a person know what he ought to do? In the dialogue, we find out that Euthyphro has no cogent answer for that question. He he thinks he knows what is right, and he says, what I'm doing is right, but he has no way of justifying it. And there is no way to justify it, given his context of ancient polytheistic paganism. But we are supposed to be able to answer that question. We are supposed to have a revelational epistemology. In other words, we know what we know because God has made it known. We know what we know because God has revealed himself. We have received the word of God, not just a word about God, not just a word from God, but the very word of God, the God-breathed word written down. God, as the maker of heaven and earth, has given all human beings, in fact, awareness of moral categories and a basic understanding of obligation. Man knows what is good and right and true because there is a God and He has spoken to them. So let's unpack that for just the last few minutes under a couple of headings. Natural revelation and special revelation. Natural revelation refers to what God has made known concerning himself through the works of creation and providence. The Bible says that all men know God, Romans chapter 1. 
God has, no, has made Himself known to them. Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Everybody knows that there is a God. He might have convinced Himself that there's not. I'm not suggesting that every unbeliever is self-consciously dishonest. I'm not suggesting that. I am suggesting that the Bible says He knows there is a God. He might have convinced himself that the animals can't talk, but he once knew that they did, right? He's Uncle Andrew telling himself they can't be talking because animals can't talk, that there can't be a God because there's not a God. And maybe he believes the lie at this point in his life, but God has made himself known to every person. Romans chapter 1 describes sinful man suppressing the truth that God is real and that He holds men accountable for knowing what is right. They suppress the truth by their sin, by their unrighteousness. In other words, unbelief is not the result of ignorance. It is an act of idolatry and immorality. It is resistance to the truth that is known but denied. Natural revelation is communicated in creation, in providence, and in conscience. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. The world that we live in, the design, the operation, all demonstrates the power of the Creator. Beyond that, we see in the outworking of natural laws, so to speak, and in human history, certain patterns, certain truths, which reveal God's existence and His ongoing governance. If God's governance was not consistent, it would not be predictable. If it was not predictable you would not have any scientific discipline that you know today. All of it is based upon natural revelation that is knowable, observable, and predictable. But natural revelation is also internal because it involves the human conscience. Human beings have an innate sense of right and wrong. They feel obligation in certain circumstances. They experience guilt and shame and regret when they act contrary to that felt duty. When they become angry, it's because they perceive injustice, whether rightly or not. The vast majority of unbelievers and atheists insist that certain things are right and wrong. Uh, virtually everyone says today that America's history of race-based chattel slavery is immoral. But immoral is a moral category. And you can't make that claim unless you acknowledge that there are universal moral norms. The final solution planned and executed by the Third Reich in Nazi Germany, Stalin's gulags and pogroms and the Rwandan genocide in 1994 are all examples just from the 20th century which provoke righteous indignation and public outcry, which gives evidence to the fact that God has created man with a moral awareness, with moral categories, with a sense of justice and of injustice. And that is because Romans 2 says, the work of the law is written upon man's heart. And that is why their conscience accuses or excuses them for their behavior. That doesn't mean that all people have the same view of every moral question. 
Obviously, sin has clouded the minds and contaminated the conscience of all people. And yet there are fundamental moral categories. There is a universal understanding that certain things are right and wrong, even if we don't always agree on particular cases. Unbelievers argue for or against public policies on moral grounds. That is why they argue that lynching black people or committing housing discrimination or restricting reproductive rights, by which they mean abortion, or forbidding same-sex marriage are all intolerable. Those are all evil positions. But evil is a moral category. Wrong assumes a lawgiver because without a lawgiver, there is no law. The fact that any one person or Zeus loves a particular activity does not make it moral and any alternative immoral. The question is not whether ethical norms exist, but which norms are to be accepted and why. But natural revelation only gets us so far. It's sufficient to establish that there is a God and that there are universal moral laws, but it's insufficient to bring perfect knowledge and consensus regarding those laws and their application. And so Christianity affirms not only that God has spoken, but that He has always, from the beginning, done so covenantally and has sovereignly imposed His will by special revelation. Sometimes, uh, even Reformed Christians make a mistake of thinking about natural revelation first, separate, and then special revelation later, supplementary. That's not the way your Bible is written, right? God speaks, things come into existence. God speaks again and tells, tells creatures what to do. Just like one, two, Genesis one, Genesis two, right? So creation and covenant, creation and special revelation, natural revelation, special revelation, they go side by side throughout history. Amen. Always. Amen. Every moral statement can be effectively challenged by two questions. Why and says who? Those are like the first two questions we learn, right? I mean, like a two-year-old is a philosopher. Why? Says who? And both of those questions have to be answered to justify any ethical claim. The answer is God, God says. Right? Kidnapping and enslaving people is wrong. Why? Because the Bible says so. Says who? God himself. Killing unborn children is wrong. Why? Because the Bible says so. Says who? God himself. Homosexuality is wrong. And consequently, so is any institutional celebration and protection of it. Why? Because the Bible says so. Says who? God himself. Special revelation simply clarifies and applies the moral law which God has sovereignly imposed. By sovereignly imposed, I mean God did not ask Adam what he wanted the rules in the garden to be. There wasn't a referendum. They didn't vote on different propositions and finally come to some kind of democratic consensus. God said, you see that tree? You can't eat that one. All the other ones you can. You eat that one, you're going to die that day. Pretty simple, right? God sovereignly imposes, here's the law. That's the way he imposes law. Theocracy, which is simply a word that means rule by God. Theocracy is inevitable. While unbelievers object to the idea that goodness must be defined in terms of God's nature and character, they will insist upon moral values which reflect their own vision of goodness and holiness. But from whence is their vision of this goodness derived? The question is not whether, but which. 
It is not whether we will have moral norms, but which laws we will obey. Not whether we will have transcendent ideals of goodness and justice, but whose we will have. Natural law is an important starting point, but it can only carry the conversation so far. Which is why John Frame observes, quote, The same God who made the rules and made the world also made us. He made us to live in His world under His rules. For Christians, there is consistency. For non-Christians, chaos. And you can turn on the news and see that that's true. Euthyphro is one of the most important philosophical works for discussing ethics because it focuses on key questions that every ethical system has to answer. How do we know what is good and just and also what is not? Do goodness, justice, and virtue have objective reality or are they only nominal constructs? What is their relationship to religion and the gods? And by what authority can human beings justify the moral judgments that they make? Well, ultimately, what is good, holy, and just is determined by God's own being. His triune nature embodies the eternal love that the moral law reveals and applies. God's law is communicated in creation and conscience, but more fully in the special revelation given to the apostles and prophets and codified in the Bible, which is to say what we've been saying all night, and that is that we know what goodness is by knowing the one who is himself good. So I'll leave you with the conclusions there on your handout. There are four. The Euthyphro dilemma is presented uh, as presented in the dialogue as a false dilemma. The presuppositions of the question are faulty because of the limitations of polytheism. Christian theism offers a justified and coherent basis for justice and ethical norms based on the righteous, immutable, and revealed character of the triune God. And a theonomic, notice small t, don't don't get heartburn about this, the idea that God in his law determines what is right and wrong, right? That theonomic understanding of revelation and morality is necessary and inevitable. In other words, there's no other way to know what is dear to the gods otherwise, okay? So this is just kind of, kind of an introduction uh, to, to uh, you know, the theme of ethics in general. 